Uh, Father God, as we come before you, we ask that you will bless this time, that out of the little, you're able to bless abundantly. So we come before you with these simple, ordinary means of some guy teaching your word, and yet for some reason, you use it. And so as we offer ourselves to you, we pray that you would use it, provide abundantly. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have this quote that I want to share with you, and it goes something like this. It says, it goes like this. The best things in life are free. The best things in life are free. The second best things are very, very expensive. End quote. You know who said this? None other than fashion designer Coco Chanel. Something about the French, they have a way with their words. The best things in life are free, but second best are very, very expensive. And yet here we are living in perhaps one of the most expensive areas in America. I mean, they have fees for everything here. They, they charge you for the tolls and the bridges. They, they, this is the first time I've had to pay, pay for trash. I, I was like surprised by that. Surprised they don't charge you for the air that we breathe here. here. There's a lot of expensive stuff here. We're, we have expensive uh, cutting-edge technology of artificial intelligence. Lots of expensive things to look at, see, and do. But do you have the best things? Do you have the best things? Because to have best, at least I assume here, if you have the best, you're absolutely satisfied, you're content with where you're at, and you have some form of peace. But what I've observed about living in this area, there's a lot of exhaustion. There's entitlement. And entitlement comes with this lack of gratitude. And all these things are trifecta. All these three things are a trifecta of not really the best things in life. All for the sake of having second best things. You see, in the, in the Bible, God is described as a shepherd. And this imagery of a shepherd was directly synonymous in describing the king, a king. And so to confess that Jesus is your shepherd is also to confess that he is king and lord over your life which also means he is the best. He is what's ultimate. And unless God is the ultimate thing in your life, you will always starve for more. No matter how much you have, no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how many life experiences you have, you'll always be starved. Unless you have the best thing. This passage makes us think about it, or at least make the case for why we need God as our shepherd. And we're going to break it down into three things here. First is this, we have creaturely limits. Second, we need care or compassion of some type. And third is we need our shepherd to help us continue in this life. These three things, creaturely limits, care and compassion, continuing. Let's look at the first part here, creaturely limits. The disciples, they, they come back from doing ministry and report to Jesus everything that's transpired, everything that they witnessed, all the people that they healed, the many people that started to come to faith because of what they were doing. 
And so I imagine little kids coming back from school after like an amazing science project to tell their mom and dad about everything that they happened during science time, how they dissected a frog, all the, the blood and the guts, and they, they, they can't contain the excitement. That's what I imagine here. Disciples are excited about everything that's been happening. Meanwhile, in the background, in the backdrop of all this, their dear friend John the Baptist has been decapitated it's quite a, a roller coaster of emotions there. You go from this high of, of just being successful in your ministry endeavors and seeing the power of God to having your friend be decapitated. There's a lot going on in their lives. So much so that in verse 31, you read that they didn't have time to eat. And so Jesus um, puts this out there by telling them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Translation, we need a vacation. Let's go on break. Let's go on break. Don't you just love that? We need a vacation. Ask any person how they're doing. How are you? And you'll always get some variation of, I've been busy or I'm tired. Busy and tired. It's this like miserable badge of honor that we have to project to everyone that something's going on in my life, something I'm doing important things. That's why I'm tired and important. And we want everyone else to be tired and important too. Because if you're not, you must be like this secret billionaire able to waste time. And we don't like that. Everyone should be tired and miserable together. That's what we think. And yet, the thing is, the response, uh, the thing about Jesus is that he understands our creaturely limits. Like, it's strange. Here, um, we, we applaud people's workaholism because they get things done, you know, right? We applaud people's workaholism, but when someone's being lazy, we think, man, what, what's wrong with you? But the thing is, they, they both have the same root cause. Perfectionism. To be the best. Right, Because when uh, um, there's nothing wrong with this idea of trying to do the best at everything in your life, but when that starts to become your identity, when being the best becomes your identity, failure starts to haunt you. So you overwork without caring for any of your uh, needs. You become a workaholic. Yet when, when also on the flip side of that, when you fear failure too much, you procrastinate, you become lazy because you're so afraid of what? Failure. Because best has become your identity. Yet for Jesus to take thought for rest, what should that say for her wearied souls? See, I could do a whole sermon series about rest, and uh, you know, which is for another time. But the main gist that I just want us to get out of this is the simple fact that Jesus understands and recognizes our creaturely limitations. We have limits. Jesus knows. So Jesus takes his disciples on vacation, and as they're uh, getting ready for their vacation, just imagine that you have this vacation booked uh, months in advance, and you've been looking forward to it. You really need that breather, so you open up your Airbnb rental, only to be greeted by your boss and your coworkers and colleagues, and they ask you about the reports that need to be done and other little random tedious tasks. You know, what would your response be if you come to that situation? 
you would be like, what is wrong with you guys? I am on vacation. You need to not disturb me. Like, get out of here, right? I'm calling HR or something. And yet, here's what Jesus does. A whole crowd gathers before him at their destination or vacation spot. And verse 34, it says, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. He has compassion. This guy who couldn't even eat because he was so busy has compassion for this crowd that does not care about his well-being. You know, when, uh, whenever I have to uh, watch the kids by myself, I, I realize how clingy my kids are at this age. Like every single second, they have to be with me in the same room. So it doesn't matter if I'm at my room and they're in their separate rooms, they have to be with me. And, you know, I, sometimes I just can't handle it because they're just attached to my hips. So I'll distract them with like toys or games in the living room and I'll disappear for like a couple of minutes and then they'll be playing and they look up and they realize, oh, Appa's gone. Ah, and they run up the stairs and they find me. And it's like, it drives me crazy sometimes because I, I, I need that little moment of separation. They're like ducklings who can't separate themselves from their moms. And internally you ask, I ask myself, why can't you just look after yourselves? Why can't you get your own milk, your own stuff? But isn't this, uh, isn't this the assumption that we all have for ourselves? That somehow we can sustain ourselves without a sustainer. We can sustain ourselves without a sustainer. And perhaps this is what Jesus saw in these people, that they are truly helpless before God. We think we can have best without God. That's what makes us helpless. I read this article about Gen Zers, how they're all about optimizing choices out of their lives, to, and that so much so that they've created spreadsheets for themselves, ranking everything from the best type of clothes uh, to kitchen appliances to even ranking the best lovers in their life. Spreadsheets about this. And one psychologist observed that those who are at, on the higher end of, of the spectrum of uh, making sure that they make the best choices, choices, optimal choices, not only have a hard time making decisions, but once they make these decisions, they're incredibly dissatisfied with the decisions that they make. And they are more likely to be clinically depressed. I don't think this is a Gen Z issue. It's a human nature issue. Wanting the best without God. When really our creatureliness, our limitations, all indicate a need for Creator God to have compassion on us, to care for us. Which brings us to point number two. Jesus saw the crowd and thought they are like sheep without a shepherd. These very same words are uttered by Moses in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 27, verse 17, where in context, Moses realizes that he cannot enter the promised land and so as he cannot prom uh, enter the promised land, he's pleading before God, who's going to lead your people home? Who's going to lead them in? Because if no one leads them, they're going to be like a sheep without a shepherd. That's what, this uh, that's what this verse is all about. 
Don't leave them abandoned and stranded by themselves. You know, I was minding my own business at a Whole Food parking lot um, two weeks ago and um, picking up groceries, and all of a sudden, there's this bunny uh, on, on like one of those um, in the parking lot chewing on a shrub of grass. And, uh, you know, I fed the bunny some lettuce, and I'm about to leave, go on with my day with my family. And then as we're about to leave, my wife says, are you going to really leave him there? And my kid said, yeah, go get him. What if a car runs him over? So like I'm like chasing around this bunny around this parking lot and uh, weeding him out with some uh, celery and all that. I finally grab him, put him in the car, and we head home. And we didn't really think this through. I think, now what? Now this bunny's living rent-free in my house. And I thought to myself, well, hold on, guys. What if that was a stranded possum? Would you guys be so inclined to say, Dad, please, Get that stranded possum. Someone's going to run him over. we got to save him. Yeah, right. No one's going to do that. And yet, our compassion, I feel, is so selective. Is it not? Like the, the bunnies are the very uh, underrepresented types of people, people in third world countries, people who, can, who have basic necessities, resources to survive. And when we see that, our hearts are moved with compassion. That there's someone that needs my compassion and care. But the possums, they drive nice cars. They have nice lives. They do nice things. But when they have problems, we just say, uh, those are just first world problems. When Jesus looked at the entire crowd and he simply said, they are my sheep without a shepherd. He is not selective about who he cares for. The thing is, as, so he teaches them. He teaches them the, the things of God, spiritual things of God. And as the day gets late, the disciples, they get tired of being compassionate. And they alert Jesus and tells them, hey, it's late. You got to send the crowd away. Send these people, verse 36, they say, send these people away so they may get something to eat. Very practical concern. And then Jesus tells them, verse 37, you give them something to eat. Impossible. Impossible. Practical concern met with impossible solution. First of all, they're in a desolate place, which is a a description of wilderness, desert-like. No restaurants, nothing in sight. Second of all, they don't have enough money. There's no way to feed this entire crowd. I feel like all he wanted from his disciples, when I'm I'm talking about Jesus here, all Jesus privately wanted from his disciples is just to admit it's impossible. Just admit that you're helpless because the the God who understands your creaturely limits, he is also the God of the impossible. Do we not worship an impossible God? When I say this, most people think about how God is capable of miracles so we can hope for some of these things in our lives. Maybe perhaps a certain type of healing. Maybe finding a romantic partner. Maybe winning the lottery of some sorts. When we hear a God of impossible. But for God to be the God of the impossible means he does the things that we could never imagine nor would have thought and hoped for ourselves. 
for us to be placed in impossible situations uh, to, to solve on our own, impossible is given to us so that there may be a time for us to turn to God in faith. And this is the miracle that God is always looking for. Because friends, our lives are impossible. We can't figure everything out. Our lives are impossible. See, in this impossible situation, all the disciples, uh, um, uh, all the disciples are able to do a muster up in this uh, situation is five loaves and two fish, with a crowd of five thousand plus people. Not nearly enough. No matter where you are in life, it's just never going to be enough. Never enough time. Not enough money. Not enough energy. Not enough care. It's never enough. Because life as it's built and made in this world will never be enough for you. Because your heart was made for God. Nothing you have here will be enough. That's the point. My counselor um, she, he asked me um, to rate myself between one and a hundred about how good of a husband I am, whether I listen well, whether I'm caring enough. Where would you rank yourself, Amos? One to a hundred. So I thought about it, and like I gave like a very practical answer. I said, maybe like 35%. I said, oh, that's really low. I put you more at 50. I was like, that's still failing. And like he says, okay, Kathy, where do you think? She rates me higher. He says, okay, Kathy puts you at 75. Let's get you really to 75. And so he, he kind of navigates through expectations that we have of one another. And as he's uh, saying all these things, uh, we talk about what it means to be friends of one another because Kathy is this big proponent that, you know, I'm her best friend as a husband. And our counselor tells us, oh, I don't believe in best friends. That's too much expectation on one person. And then there's all these comparisons that you have. You know, he can't be your best friend, really. You have multiple friends that you should have. But he can be the best husband. Ain't that a trip? I'm the best husband to her. And he says, because you're the only husband. Ah, deflated. Best because you're only. I thought about this interaction because I realized in my life I expect God to show up in practical ways, whether it's with church or with finance, with family. And if he doesn't show up in a particular way in these impossible situations in my life, I'm incredibly disappointed. Not because God is not there for me, but because he didn't show up the way that I wanted him to. He didn't, and what I realized is that in these moments, I've created many gods. And God, you got to fit this mold for me. Show up this way. And yet, for God ever, uh, and yet for God himself to be the best in my life means that God has to give his ever so gentle reminders to me. That if God is truly to be ultimate, truly to be best, his gentle reminders to me are, Amos, you can't have it all. You can't have it all. But I promise you, I will give you my all. 
That means everything. For God to be the best and the ultimate in your life, his promise to you is that he will give you all of your concerns and give you all that you want in your life. His very great promise to you is, I promise to give you my all. Because that's the only thing that will make you continue an impossible life that you have. Which brings us to the last point. Moses pleaded before God, someone to lead his people, to finish what he started, and Mark 6 ends, um, uh, for the crowd of Mark 6, uh, they're just like us. They're tired. They're weary. They're hungry. They're faint-hearted. Who will lead these people? And Jesus sits them all down, and he, as he gathers all these people, 5,000 plus people, he, he ends up feeding them all. It's a miracle of all miracles. But no one even realizes, realizes it's a miracle. And yet there's this one key detail that Mark leaves in here in verse 39. He says that he gathers the groups, the people, and he organizes them into groups, which is also the language for banqueting parties. And so when they sit down, they sit down, notice here, on green grass. Either this is a typo, because all throughout the narrative, Mark has said that they, they were in a desolate place, a desolate place which means a desert or wilderness. It's either a typo or Mark has something else in mind. That even in the most desolate places of our lives, God's presence will be like a shepherd leading his sheep into fresh green meadows. That he provides a banqueting feast in the most hopeless and impossible of circumstances. That's what he promises to be to us. How can we be sure of this? How can we be so sure? Moses pleads with God to bring his people into the promised land, and yet God calls Joshua in the Old Testament to continue as his shepherd. He is their king. And Joshua's name literally means God saves. What is Jesus' original name? How is it pronounced? Yeshua. He is the Joshua type who literally saves his people. The ultimate king who secures the best spot for us at his banqueting table in heaven. He is the true great shepherd who leads us to greener pastures and still waters for our wearied souls. How are we provided with this kind of access? How are we given these things? Because as God brings us to the green pastures, it means someone has to be cast out into the desolate places. Jesus is cast out. He didn't just want the best for us, he gave us his best to secure the best place planted in the heart of God. He gave us, uh, he envisions the best future a feast with him in heaven. Jesus gave up his best so that you might have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The best things in life are free and none better than to receive the grace of God. So you can make two choices today, friends. 
One, your life can be either incredibly expensive, where nothing you have will ever be enough, or two, you live an incredibly enriched, blessed life to know that your good shepherd will always lead you to greener pastures because he will always be stuck in the desolate places on the cross for you. And if that is your good shepherd's promise, why ever settle for second best? Let me pray for us. Father God, as we come before you, thank you that you promised to be our good shepherd that despite all the ebbs and flows of where our hearts can turn to, you promise to still lead us. You are the best. You have no rivals. There's no competition. And yet to look at us, where there's literally billions of people, probably better than me as a person, and for you to turn your gaze at the people of New Life Fremont and still say, you are my chosen. I will give you my best for you. Lord, teach us what it means to truly have what's best, to hear our good shepherd's voice and to follow. Thank you that you laid down your life for the sheep. Thank you that you promised to still lead us even when we're a mess. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.